I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Bunurong people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. You know that when you're sitting down, you taste those wines, that that's when you realise that all that extra effort was worth it. Um, and unless you're going to sort of um, push yourself to discover new heights and, um, you know, it's, I, don't, I certainly don't have any interest in a job where you sort of clock on and clock off and, um, and don't challenge yourself. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Simon Black is Chief Winemaker at Montalto Estate in the stunning Mornington Peninsula. He heads up an award-winning winemaking team at the Five Star Winery and joins us today to talk about life at the edge of Victoria. Hi, Simon. Thanks for joining me. Shantae, thanks for having me. Oh, such a pleasure to have you and uh, been such a big fan of Montato Estate for some time. Now, I noticed on Instagram that you call yourself a grape interventionist. What is that exactly? Um, I think for quite a while there are a lot of a lot of winemakers sort of talking about low intervention winemaking. And for me, um, low intervention doesn't necessarily mean the wine's going to be better. I think it's about um, being considered. And as a winemaker, it's your job to intervene when you think you need to, to get what you think is going to be the best expression of your um, your wine. So intervention um, when when it's required, pretty much. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I mean, if we didn't intervene at all, you'd just have raisins on the ground, wouldn't you? That's right. And they eventually turn to vinegar. So, um, you know, intervening is the most important part of winemaking, knowing when and how, um, that's key. And that way you can um, control the outcomes and get the best result. Yeah, I like that idea. And you're right. It's all about timing and, and knowing what to do when and and that changes all the time, right? It's not a formula that you can just kind of replicate and and follow year after year no look i mean the variables each season are just incredible so you know weather um you know disease conditions um you know vine age every year the vine gets a bit older um and yeah with climate change happening now you know we're all sort of learning to to deal with that and and it's a it's a tricky thing to do um Knowing how, again, knowing how and when to sort of manage the, these new conditions is, is really important. So um, it's tricky, but um, showing a level of flexibility and understanding your vineyards and understanding your styles and, um, and yeah, again, coming back to the intervention, knowing how to intervene in the best way to either maintain style and, and maximise quality or if you need to change the style a bit, knowing, you know, which direction you want to take on that path as well. Yeah. I totally get that. Do you remember, let's go back a little while, and do you remember a first memory of wine where you, you kind of first took notice of wine? And tell me how you kind of found your way into being a winemaker at one of the most incredible estates in Australia. Um, yeah, look, my, I, my father was um, a keen wine drinker um, to the point where he actually um, started, he had restaurants for a while. He was in politics for quite some time and used to have a lot of long lunches. And um, I think um, by default, he would um, enjoy wine that went with it. Um, and then this was in Canberra in the 70s. And he um, discovered that the food scene in Canberra in the 70s was, wasn't that great. So um, he left his, his job as a politician and he um, opened a restaurant. And so from an early age, I was always immersed in, in food um, and I always saw Dad drinking wine and I guess that was an era where 
Um, it was reasonably normal for um, a parent to encourage your kid to enjoy the pleasures of life. So he would often let us smell his his glass of wine, or he'd um, give us a tiny drop of wine in a glass of water, and sort of make make us think and, and, and appreciate it. And um, yeah, I guess it just grew from there. So I, I sort of grew up in kitchens, learning how to you know peel potatoes and carrots, and then. As I got a bit older, I was given more responsibility um, to the point um, where, you know, I used to sort of um, make starter, you know, starters, um, entrees, that sort of thing on Friday and Saturday nights. And then um, as I sort of got into my teenage years, that wine element really sort of became part of the, the food element. Hmm. Um, so just that immersion and being around food and wine all my life has sort of led to, to where I am now, really. So, do you know your way around a kitchen? I mean, do you do a little bit of cooking these days? Oh, look, I, I probably did a lot more when I was um, before I had kids, um, and my responsibilities as a, um, a working sort of parent sort of overrode uh, you know, a lot of the cooking that I previously would have done. Um, so, my wife's become the main the main chef in the house, um, and she's she's great at what she does. So, look. I, Probably not as much as I used to, but I certainly still do have um, a real keen enjoyment. Um, you know, Dad showed me you know, all the classic methods for cooking. He was really, um, heavily influenced by um, French cuisine. So, yeah, just learning how to make a roux and, you know, different brown sauces and, you know, making stock from start to finish and all those sort of basic sort of fundamentals in, in cooking. Um, and I guess I've always had a, a – I've always been very keen and interested in um, – you know, the way flavours and textures and acids and sugars sort of inter interact with one another. So I think when I look at food, I see very similar sort of qualities when it comes to winemaking. So yeah. I'm quite innovative and thoughtful um, about flavours and, um, and, yeah, and just trying to, I guess, get balance across all facets of either a meal or, or a wine I'm making. Mm. I think that that's a, it's a great... Um, Vision because I think being able to make a a decent vinaigrette or of a blanc sauce or something like that it is really all about balance and it's not hard at all. But if you don't um if you don't you know have a an idea of of the components that make up something that's um you know greater than the sum of its parts then then you're in trouble as a winemaker. So. <laughs> but I mean you're incredibly busy, so I'll let you off the hook for not cooking as much. You graduated on onology in, um, from Charles Sturt in 1996 and then you travelled around the world. Other than life experiences, how do you go about kind of choosing where to go and do vintage in that kind of formative years and then where did you head off to? Oh, look, I, I think it was more – I think when you're young, you kind of um, just – you're probably more desperate to find someone who wants you really because you, you don't have a lot of experience. So – um, you kind of just make as many phone calls or back then send a fax or yeah, a letter as many as you can and hope you know, hope one will land with someone who has enough um, trust to, to give you a, a gig. Um, so, look, my, my probably one of my first big gigs when I travelled overseas, um, I had been travelling with my brother and another winemaker and the other winemaker who is um, Jim Chatto, we'd been doing a venture together in the Hunter Valley um, and we'd been, we were about to go travelling together um, through Europe and, and America and um, we'd been looking at opportunities for work just to sort of supplement the, um, 
the, the funding for the, the entire journey and he discovered a flying winemaker group and so we put our um, our names up for that. I think he was sent to Romania and I um, I got thrust off into to Moldova, which is now at the edge of all this um, Russian-Ukrainian conflict. So mm. it was a pretty... It was a pretty amazing experience. It was more of a life experience than a winemaking experience. Taught you how to um, deal with situations that were like far from ideal, and taught you a lot about communicating with people. And um, but yeah, immersed me in a, a different culture and met some wonderful people in the process. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I mean, travel for anything like that is just so important, isn't it? And just you know, being away from everything you know and the people you know and and having like you said to find ways to communicate and and understand culture um but moldova that's pretty incredible what what are some of your favorite memories from that time oh my goodness it was um it was such a a, a shocking experience to say the least and the fact that like the culture shock was remarkable um aside from the, the language but um just there's an entirely different way of thinking over there. Um, so it was just more trying to adapt and fit into that. Um, but look, some of the great memories are just some of the people I, I met. You know, they're a country um, with very little, um, but what they what the, the people did have, they were, um, you know, always very open and willing to share, you know, their, their best bottle of wine or, you know, very, what little they had, they shared it in its entirety. So, yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful experience in terms of um, – yeah, just witnessing humanity at its probably its its best, really. Gosh, I, I would love to get get out. I mean, obviously not lose, not right now. But um, some of those Eastern European countries just fascinate me. And yeah, what a wonderful experience! And uh, I bet you won't forget it. Tell me about how you found your way down to Mornington Peninsula of all places, and and how you came about being a head winemaker at Montalto in two thousand and nine. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I, I had a, a girlfriend at the time who had been, um, who had a, a vintage job at, at Stonia. This is, I think about 1995 and, um, I'd been working, uh, in the Hunter and then I'd gone down for a short stint at Campbell's in Rutherglen and, um, I had a weekend off and thought I'd come and visit my girlfriend. So I, I drove from, um, Rutherglen down to the Mornington Peninsula and just went in and did a bit of volunteer work, um, at Stonia Wines, um, where she was working. And um, so that, that was my first introduction to Mornington. And then on the back of that, I managed to um, to get a vintage position um, at Stonia in 1996. And um, and I just I just loved the area. And um, that, that position eventually ended, and I, I think I ended up going to the Yarra Valley and working for a, a winery there. Um, and... Uh, at one point, um, I think it was towards the end of 97, um, Willow Creek Vineyard um, were looking for a winemaker to um, set up a new winemaking facility. And um, I was only, I think, 27 at the time, and I was um, just incredibly lucky to um, to get offered the position. And um, I think, you know, it was a pretty amazing and challenging position. I think what saved the, the lack of experience and knowledge, I was um, young enough to have an amazing amount of energy and and passion and drive. So where I, what I lacked in, in knowledge, I made up for in this just sheer bullishness and um, <laughs> determination to succeed. And I, look, I, I was surrounded with some, some good people who were able to guide me and 
and push me in the right direction when I got a little off course. So, um, but that that was my first foray into into the peninsula, and then um, I spent I think it was about five years with Willow Creek and then um, decided I wanted to do a bit more traveling. So I traveled around um, for a while and then um, overseas and then uh, found my way back to Australia where I um, set up another winery called Heathcote Estate, which is um, part of oh, the I Yabby think I've Lake. heard of that. <laughs> yeah. So that was um, in 2002 and um, I was there for a while and then I had a, a change of um, scenery and I, I met, met my wife and um, – and we eventually we moved sort of further north up around the Alpine Valleys. Hmm. Uh, had some family up there, so we settled there for a bit. And then um, I was keen to actually get back to the Mornington Peninsula and um, Montalto advertised for a winemaker and they were also looking to, to build a new winemaking facility. So I threw my hat in the ring and I was, um, yeah, fortunate enough to get the position and have been, um, yeah, immersed here ever since. Wow. Wow, well, such a, a great coincidence they were looking for someone and that you happen to be the right person. You're coming into your, is it 12th vintage now or are we further along? Than- uh, I think I've just finished my 13th, yeah. So, um, yeah, a few years under the belt now. So, I mean, Montalto is an incredible estate and I well, we can get a little bit further down into um, kind of how the, the tiers and the, the different um, vineyards are broken up. But when you first moved to Mornington Peninsula from um, – Alpines from Heathcote. What did you notice that was different? I mean, it's so beautiful. It's right on the coast there, lovely cool breezes. But talk to me a little bit about what you were thinking when you first moved down there and getting to know the region a bit more. Um, so fr- from my my first um, journey at Willow Creek, look, it, it was a pretty, you know, end of 1997, it was a pretty young area in many respects. Um, viticulture was quite young. I mean, there, there had been some players around for, you know, some time. So, like, the Stonia family had been around since, you know, the, the early to mid-'80s. I think um, Bailey Meyer with LG Park had sort of set his vineyard up sort of in the mid to late-'70s. But other than that, there were not a, a great many people who had sort of established venues. I think Crittenden was another one and maybe Merrick's estate, George Kefford. Um, but there were a whole heap of emerging wineries like, you know, Willow Creek had finally, you know, set up a, a cellar door and, um, you know, they opened a restaurant and then um, there's been a whole succession of, of sort of businesses sort of about 20 years old now that have um, are now part of the, you know, the, the big picture of the peninsula. Um, so I, I guess there was probably an immaturity um, of experience and knowledge of viticulture, and we probably hadn't had the, you know, the decades behind us to really fully appreciate and understand what was required to to make great wine. So, you know, a lot of people had put Cabernet in, um, which, you know, as time's gone by, we probably realised probably not not the best variety suited to this area. And I think with time and experience, we now recognise that Chardonnay and Pinot are, are wonderful varieties that work really well here. So ha- having sort of taken, a, I guess, a 10-year break after leaving Willow Creek and before heading back to um, to Montalto, when I did come back, I noticed... I, did, I noticed a significant change where in viticulture, you know, pruning techniques had changed. So at Willow Creek, we'd had things like hanging cane and silver and these sorts of things, which are just um, – and there was a, a lot of focus on yield rather than quality. Um, not for everyone. Certainly some people mm. had a, a different idea at the time, but certainly where I was working, that was a, 
um, a, a consideration. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, inputs into the vineyard, like, you know, fertigation and fertilising and things like that, which you could see probably wasn't required, but just out of a sort of dogmatic approach to how things are done and probably not having the knowledge we were doing things more like a, on a farm sort of methodology for crop rather than quality. So when I returned, there had been a, a huge shift in, in thinking, um, you know, a lot more focus on, you know, the inputs and, you know, what impact they were having and, you know, how to improve outcomes. Um, and, and certainly in wine, terms of winemaking, I think, you know, we'd had another sort of 10, 15 years experience behind us to actually apply our craft and work out what was um, what techniques worked and what techniques didn't. So I think having an innovative approach and being open to trying different things and um, working out what works and what doesn't work with your particular fruit um, has been really important. So probably the biggest thing is just a maturing of, um, of viticulture input, a, a maturing of vineyards too. You know, we've got vineyards that are now – you know, 30, 40 years old. So our, our earliest vineyard was planted in 86. Um, and I think you see a big difference in vines that have planted, you know, young plantings compared to things that have, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of age on them. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, it's interesting for you to see that kind of growth over that time. And the reason I asked is because for me, I've always kind of thought of Mornington just you know, as a point of difference, it is just that little bit more isolated from the regions. You're a committee member for the uh, Mornington Peninsula Vineyards Association. What's the importance of community um, because you are a little bit further away from some of the other regions? Um, yeah, look, I mean, being immersed in a culture is, is really important. Um, you know, it, it kind of is a sharing of, um, knowledge and experience and information and, um, you know, being part of a collective, uh, you know, is much more powerful than sort of sitting out there on your own, I think. Um, and I think, yeah, the Mornings Peninsula Vineyards Association have always been very um, communal, very welcoming, and it's really important. Uh, it's a really important um, aspect for, for all the girls in the peninsula. They, you know, help to organise a lot of workshops for us. They... Um, channel a lot of information to us, a lot of research. They organise a lot of research projects, um, which um, which the information is fed back to um, to the growers and the winemakers to help digest and understand better what it is we do. They're really important in promoting the region, um, not only from a branding perspective, but also from a sales perspective and bringing new people to the area. Um, so, like, the area is just – it's boomed in the last – 20 years it's quite amazing so you know people really recognize it now they they view it as an amazing um, food and wine destination and you can see just with the investments of like um you know the new jackalope jackalope hotel um point leo estate so a lot of money has come into the area and um and consumers are responding yeah it's a real holiday destination and um yeah it's incredibly beautiful place to be a part of um so there's no reason pretty much why you wouldn't come here to be honest with you well, totally agree with you. And I think um, you're right. There are so many great, incredible cellar doors and wonderful restaurants down there. But for me, in my experience, I actually saw the Mornington Wines take off and that reputation kind of gather momentum before um, I remember there being these destination places to eat down there. And I think Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and, and Pinot Gris had a lot to do with that. But I could be wrong. So what do you think um, – 
where do you think, you know, the reputation for fine wine, where did that start to really kind of take off? And, and was it those three varieties or was it something else? Um, yeah, look, look, probably Chardonnay and Pinot um, and then, then, you know, following with um, Gris and, and probably now Shiraz um, in the form of, um, a, you know, Syrah sort of styles. Um, look, I, I just think it's been a, a lot of commitment and hard work by um, you know, a lot of small producers who have just been absolutely committed to to quality. You know, they, they've dedicated pretty much the better part of their working lives to explore and discover the potential of the peninsula. It's not something that just happens overnight. You know, it's something that take does take years and years. Um, and there are you learn. Yeah, you probably have a lot of mistakes on that journey, but you know, the, the mistakes are as important as the, the successes because without those mistakes, you, you don't learn. Um, so I think it's you know all, all those guys who came before before me and um, and put in the hard yard to sort of help, I guess, light the path um, for the rest of us. And I think you know the, the new sort of generation that has come through. Have benefited benefited from that, and um, you know everyone's as equally passionate and um, and driven to to improve. So it's it, the bar sort of gets lifted, you know, higher every year, and we're all mm. pretty keen to 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 step up to that mark and try and improve our own lot, really. Yeah, well, we have a lot, yeah, to thank from those first pioneers, and grateful for it. Uh, Mornington Peninsula wine is, isn't a hard sell in a restaurant. They tend to sell themselves. What um, always strikes me is that I think that in terms of stylistically, some of the varietals really have taken on um, their own identity down in Mornington. Talk us through, and, and one of those is, off, is often guests asking about why the Pinot is so ex, like um, deep in colour and got so much flavour. So talk us through the, the Mornington region and, and the moderating factors in the climate. I mean, you're, you're right out in the peninsula with Port Phillip and Western Port Bay and the Bass Strait, and, and how does that influence the conditions of the, where the grapes are grown? Um, look, the, probably the, the significant impact of the being surrounded by water is that sort of moderating effect of temperature. So we don't suffer from um, from springtime frost. So there's a, a, I guess, a bit of an insurance policy there for us. Um, but the other, the other, from the other side of it is that we it, the uh, moderating effect of water during those sort of hot summer days um, is actually has a, a cooling effect um, on the land. Um, so if you're thinking about, you know, a super hot day in Melbourne where it might be sitting, you know, let's talk about extremes, it might be in the 40s in Melbourne, those um, hot breezes are coming down from central Australia, you know, being driven down with a northerly uh, weather pattern. And for them to get to the peninsula, it has to cross Western Port Bay, and it's almost like an evaporative cooler as the, the hot air sort of hits that body of water. It picks up moisture and, and has this um, cooling effect. So by the time it hits the peninsula, you sort of back down into sort of low to mid-30s, and that, that's pretty significant because it means that our diurnal temperature um, throughout that um, that growing ripening period is usually sitting between about 15 and, you know, at the extreme 35 degrees, and vines are metabolising um, doing most of their metabolizing between those two temperatures. If you go below 15, the um, there's not enough warmth to heat for the the vine to function. And if you go above the um, above sort of 34, 35 degrees, the 
the plant will actually close itself down. So the stomata and the leaves will shut down to um, avoid transpiring all the available water off into the atmosphere. So what we find is that the, the metabolizing of the vine is such that um, you just have this, this constant gradual ripening of the fruit without this sort of switching on, switching off sort of pattern. Um, and that just seems to lend itself to um, just amazing sort of ripening conditions and accumulation of flavors and colors and tannins. And, but we still have enough sort of coolness to, um, to keep, you know, good natural acidity in the grapes. Hmm. Um, so it's just, I don't know, it just all the, the weather, that sort of moderating effect of temperature seems to to have create this, these beautiful conditions that grow wonderful fruit. Um, I mean, geographically, Mornington's a really compact area, but it's incredibly diverse. So um, I think the highest point on the peninsula is Arthur's Seat. I think that sits sort of on a, a notch over 305 metres. Mm-hmm. So the peninsula will have, I think, the highest vineyard maybe around 250, all the way down to sea level. Mm. Um, so you get this big elevation change um, and you can also have um, a lot of different aspects. So, you know, a lot of growers have north, northeast, southwest aspects um, and, you know, between those elevations you get soil change as well. So the Red Hill Main Ridge areas, which we refer to as up the hill, typically have um, sort of red, mostly red, but with yellow sort of clays. And those clays, um, they're like volcanic clays and they tend to have a lot of high water and nutrient status. Whereas if you move further down the hill back towards um, Churong and Muraduck and Merrick, those areas, you start to come out of um, these clays and you're into more sort of free-draining grey and brown sandy loams. Mm. So even though you're only talking, you know, 10 to 15 kilometres, you get this dramatic change in elevation and and growing conditions. So despite the compactness of, of the area, it has, is really diverse. So uh, it usually, as a rule of thumb, you'll probably find that wines from Red Hill and Main Ridge typically have probably more perfume and they're a bit more delicate um, and pretty in style, whereas the, the wines sort of down the hill further north tend to show maybe a little more little more sort of richness and more plushness. Um, so depending on the style of wine you like, you can almost target um, a producer that you think, um, you, you're, you know, a style that you like and head, you know, if you like something a bit more plush, you might head to those producers further north on the peninsula. If you like something a bit more aromatic and fresh and pretty, you might head further up the hill. So it's, Yeah, there's it's, just yeah, so it's, much to play with, isn't there? It is. A bit of a look, dream. It is. Look, we, we have six sites um, across four subregions on the peninsula, so we've got, um, vineyards at Main Ridge, Red Hill, Merricks, and Churong. And yeah, the the Main Ridge is our Main Ridge vineyard is about 170 meters above sea level, and our Churong sitting at about 30. Now, as the crow flies, they're only probably 12 kilometers apart. Um, but as an example of the 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 extreme difference of those two sites, the Pinot from both those sites we've actually harvested four weeks apart in some years. Um, mm. And that is purely and simply to do with the um, the growing conditions and um, the elevation. So that that you, you just get a feel for the coolness of the those sites up the hill, which are a bit more exposed um, through elevation. And because the soils are wetter and there's more nutrient, the canopy is actually a bit larger. So um, ripening happens a bit a bit later. Um, whereas the 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 free draining nature of the vineyards down the hill, you can you almost need to be careful that it. Um, that you have enough water to make sure that you don't stress the vines too much on some of those hot days. Um, so, yeah, extreme differences over such a, a small 
geographical area. And yeah, everyone's vineyard is um, slightly different. And that's, I think that's the beauty of it. Um, there are lots of different aspects and elevations and that means that everyone has their own little piece of unique dirt. And um, so even though it's compact, you can still see a difference in, in styles and then you throw winemaking into it and um, yeah, it just adds a whole new layer of complexity to it. Yeah, certainly never gets boring. And I think, you know, throughout Mornington, there are so many different styles and so many different um, varieties and, and take on, on what each estate is doing, which does make it really exciting. Montalto is broken up into three tiers or kind of chapters. If someone was, say, about to, you know, head over to the cellar door and they were just thinking, you know, I just want to get, wrap my head around the three kind of Montalto, Single Vineyard and Pennant Hill, how would you kind of um, explain those offerings? Um, I, I think if we look at our uh, at Pennant Hill, that's kind of our entry-level wines and we make those to be um, to be just bright, fresh, energetic, clean and, and lively and, and really approachable. Um, so we typically using clones that might, um, you know, in the Pinot, we're probably using more sort of D clones and aromatic clones and, um, clones that can just give real freshness and, and vibrancy early on. Um, with the estate wines, we're typically choosing, um, vines, vineyards that are probably older and clones that will actually give a bit more depth and structure and, and power and intensity. And then the single vineyard wines are kind of, yeah, it's a, they're just self-fulfilling. They're all about the uniqueness of site and um, and just harnessing the expression of that site um, in the style that we think is probably going to coax out the best expression. Um, so, um, you know, I, I kind of use the analogy, you know, I kind of look at the single vineyard wines as being like the, the principal soloist um, in an orchestra mm-hmm. and and the estate wines being more like the orchestra playing together um so it's it's hard to distinguish you know, sometimes i would look at the estate ones and go well maybe there's more complexity and there's more layers because there are some of many parts mm. so but it's up to the individual to think well is it better to listen to a principal violinist in an orchestra and and just really admire the purity and the beauty of um of that person applying their craft to the highest level or you know if you, you take that violinist and then you put them with other you know a, a, a cello and other instruments and then you and they're all exceptional talent as individuals but when you put them together does that give you know greater depth you know it's that it's that harmony um so oh, look it's it's up to the 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 eye of the beholder i guess to sort of choose their path but it's just for me i, I really love distilling each of our single sites down because you know they are unique and they offer such different qualities, but I, I can't ever sit there and say I prefer one over the other. I, I, mm. I love them for for who they are and what what they have to offer. Um, you know, as our main ridge pinot is always very fragrant and very delicate and pretty. Um, but if you're being critical, you might say, oh, you know, it could use some more um, intensity or structure or concentration. But that would defeat the purpose of the beauty of that, that particular site. Mm-hmm. And those, those other qualities can be seen in our other vineyards. So just ha- having a mix of different vineyards is just a real thrill because you can see them for what they are. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know the Pennon Hill Chardonnay and Pinot have been a couple of um, kind of house Chardonnay and Pinot in my house. And because they just offer so much um, 
flavor for the price point, I think. So they've definitely featured in my house more than more than once. But I know if I went to a restaurant, I'd probably choose to drink something like the Turong Chardonnay um, or perhaps even, yeah. So I think that there's really depending on your mood and, and what you're in the mood, you know, where you are, there's so many different layers to the portfolio in itself, which is which is lovely to have. Um, Simon, when was the last time you you kind of stopped yourself in your tracks in your job and thought, this is why I do this and I love my job, this is incredible? Um, oh, look, it actually happens, happens pretty regularly. Um, you know, there are times like we did a tasting um, yesterday. We've just been putting our, um, our rosé blend together um, for 2022 and we, we've spent – we're always thinking of doing – of different ways to do things. So this year we um, we employed a, a, a winemaking technique called stabulation, um, which is where you you very gently press um, the grapes, and it's about extracting um, flavour out of the um, the lees, the grape mm-hmm. lees, um, prior to fermentation. So you actually chill it down for an extended period of time, try and actually keep it from fermenting for sort of um, two to three weeks, and during that. Um, process you're extracting a lot of flavor and you get a lot of a, a big shift in texture so we were just tasting um, the various blend options we had yesterday and and this particular method that we used for the first time um, was just a, a real highlight and it sort of uh, it turned a few lights on for the winemaking team and it was just very satisfying to see that all this extra effort you'd put in over vintage for this technique had really um it just bought some um, a lot of uh, fruitful outcomes for us. So um, um, I, I guess that's an example. I mean, there's always times where you'll you'll do things where they don't go to plan, and <laughs> um, you, you you're not disappointed, but um, you, sometimes you go into a, a trial thinking you're going to get a certain outcome, and it actually actually turns out to be the opposite. And, and I think even though it's disappointing in that regard, sometimes those different outcomes are actually more beneficial than you'd expected. Um, It's amazing what a a small amount of a trial wine in a form that you would consider not to be ideal in its individual component. It's amazing if you put a tiny percentage, one or two or 3% of that in a greater blend, how much of um, additional complexity and layers it can put through a wine. So, um, Whilst we might, you know, do some trials that don't work out as individual wines, they always find a place um, to add complexity. And it's almost like a new, another tool in the toolkit. So you'll, mm. you might find that in two years' time, you'll be confronted with certain weather condition or something, or um, a certain event in the winery where you'll remember that technique from the previous year and find that maybe that's the year to pull that tool out and use it to overcome an obstacle. Mm. Um, so look, it's just, it's just, um, every day is just another part of the journey and it's always a thrill just to be always thinking and trying to discover new ways to make wine and, um, new flavors. And, you know, I guess the other thing is that every vintage is different and the challenge to try and continue to make great wine with all these variables in front of you, that's probably the hardest thing, but, um, it also keeps it interesting. Uh, I think that's Mm. probably the, the main thing. It's the quest, isn't it? That just yeah, keeps... totally. It's the quest that feeds the fascination, as I kind of like to put it. Absolutely. I love that. I um, And I also can see that, you know, 
being that you're at the the head of of a team there that when you ask them to do a lot more work like something like stabulation <laughs> must be really rewarding when you're like see I told you all that work was w- worth it uh, and kind of wipe your brow and think Phew. Um, look, sometimes <laughs> we're sitting there in vintage when you know the day has gone a lot longer than you'd planned and everyone's a bit tired um, and it's probably getting through those times where you're sitting there going oh I just you know I just really want to go home now I'm, I'm pretty exhausted um, but you know that when you're sitting down, like I mentioned yesterday, and you, you taste those wines, that that's when you realise that all that extra effort was worth it. Um, and unless you're going to sort of um, push yourself to discover new heights, and um, yeah, it's I, I certainly don't have any interest in a job where you sort of clock on and clock off and um, and don't challenge yourself. So um, I, I think that the team are always fascinated by it. And as a collective, you know, we bounce off one another and um, enjoy the challenge. Yeah. It, it just keeps totally. it, keeps it interesting, which is mm. really important. So nice to be able to have something tangible as well. Like you said, to, to taste the, the kind of results of your work vintage after vintage, whereas, you know, in a lot of other, professions you have to wait for someone to hand you an award or to tell you you know you've done a great job but um wine is tangible and, and you're able to kind of see the fruits of your labor which is which is so lovely yeah, Simon, i want to know uh from you if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life what would they be and why oh dear well um i mean what wine's going to be up there at the top <laughs> Um, without a doubt. Do I, do I have to choose a variety or I can just loosely get away with wine as a, a genre? Oh, if you make the other two more interesting, I'll let you get away with oh, look, it. I'm a, bit of a, I'm a bit of a sucker for gin. Ew, okay, good. So I think um, gin's a pretty important part. There's a lot of, lot of drinks you can make with gin but, um, and there's a lot of gins out there at the moment. So um, uh, one of my other winemakers, Hannah, she is a bit of a gin fanatic. Um, awesome. So we enjoy gin every now and again. And, look, I think probably coffee would be <laughs> the other one I couldn't let go. Um, it sustains us um, through, the, through the long hours of vintage. Um, and Definitely. we have a coffee machine that we all stand around a couple of times a day and, and just talk about what's happening. And it's kind of a, a little um, point of a meeting point where we can just enjoy each other's company and um, – yeah, and just talk through, you know, what happened on the weekend and talk through what's going to happen during the week and for the rest of the day, that sort of thing. So probably those three, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely staples. And, uh, yeah, I don't know where we'd be without coffee. I don't know if a lot of wine would get made if we if we didn't have that. So <laughs> no, <we laughs> good to all, see it. We'll probably all get sleepy around the, uh, come, you know, come about three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, after that lunch, it's that that flat line. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Well, Simon, it's been fantastic to hear from you. Uh, I hope that we get to have another chat uh, next time I'm down in the peninsula. And thank you so much for making some time. And uh, we love what you do and keep on keeping on. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in your 14th vintage. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.